Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone, a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people, and today I have my first ever poet, I think. Uh, anyway, he is the Poet Laureate of the City of West Hollywood. His name is Stephen Rains. I've known him for quite a while, but I've never gotten to talk to him a lot about what he does and what it's like to be a poet. Um, so before we get into that, I just want to uh, remind you that you can go to DennisAnyone.net. You can see some pictures that I take that go with different podcasts. He talks a lot about his love for Anais Nin, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong. And he has a whole shelf, a whole giant bookcase of her stuff and books about her. So I took a picture of that, little things like that. Um, you can see that at DennisAnyone.net. You can also donate to my virtual tip jar. It helps me pay for web hosting and little expenses that come up. Um, and I really appreciate it. It keeps the podcast free. keeps me going. And uh, without any further ado, here now is Stephen Rains. Hey there, I'm here in the very sweet apartment of today's guest, Stephen Rains. <laughs> I love your apartment. It's like very, you were just telling me before, it's very, it feels a little like New York because it's compact. And yes. you were telling me before you had this fantasy. Yeah, I was watching these videos about micro homes and I was fantasizing like, oh, you know, to live in a micro home. And I looked around and I was like, you're in it right now. You're in a micro home. It's yes. very like compact, everything in its place, the little shelves where you don't expect them and not a lot of square footage. No, it's it's a cute little, it reminds me of a tree house. Yeah, it's you a know? little like a tree house because you're above a garage. Yeah, and it's, um, I have lots of windows, no immediate neighbors and... It's quiet. I love it here. It's also just a block away from bars, uh, the library, and restaurants. I love it. Yeah. Well, the library is important to you because you are a poet and a teacher, and you're also the Poet Laureate of West Hollywood, or the City Poet. Or which, which is the title? I've read both. <clears throat> okay, so there was a Poet Laureate committee that um, selected who was going to be the Poet Laureate, and at that point in time, they changed the title to City Poet. Okay. And I try not to use that title because no one knows what City Poet actually is. Right. It's, it's hard enough to find people who know what Poet Laureate is. Yeah. I mean, in this day and age, Poet is pushing it. For people. Yes. So, um, how neat that you're the Poet Laureate of, of West Hollywood. Yes, and I'm the first, actually. You're the first. And we always remember our first. You always remember your yes. first. When did that happen? So that happened in October of last year. So it's a two-year appointment, and this October there's uh, they're selecting a new poet. You're going to hand over your crown. Yes, and uh, what's very flattering is that I'm on the selection committee. So you get to to, to decide who's going to take your place. Yeah, I get to take bribes and see see how it goes. Exactly. How did you become the poet laureate of West Hollywood? There was an application process, and right. you know a big part of it is just applying. But before that, it was. I believe one of the reasons I was selected is all of the community work I did beforehand. So I I think for five or six years, was years in a row, taught poetry writing workshops for National Poetry Month at the library, the West Hollywood Library. Um, I'm just really involved in the community. Um, of course, I was part of the West Hollywood Book Fair, which is no longer around anymore. I know. I used to do panels there. Um, I love it. So you, you mentioned the library. You talk about in some of the stuff that I've read about you that the library was like your solace when you were a kid. Oh. That you love the library. Because sometimes we forget that libraries are exi exist. Like, I went to one in my neighborhood a few years ago and I was like, they have all this stuff <laughs> and you can take it for free for a while. 
Like, the whole concept kind of blew my mind because I hadn't been in that world for a while. And what an amazing um, resource it is for people. Yeah, in terms of a place where there's incredible access to art and literature. And like you said, it's all free. Um, but I, I always end up keeping things too long. Yeah, I do as well. Yeah, that's um, okay. You know, they take checks even. The library takes checks for late fees. Um, really? Yeah. That's good. Um, I know that from personal experience. You've written a check before? Oh, numerous. How, yeah. Like, how big of a check are we talking? It was $42. Wow. Yeah. What, I mean, that's talent. That is talent that right is there. Good. That is talent. What was um, it for? What, what, what did you keep so long? Oh, this was a while ago. I remember the amount, but I don't know if I could remember the books. I think I was doing a research project of some sort. Right. And just decided... I don't know. I think life got busy, and maybe they got lost in my trunk. I, I just know. feel like whoever would have accepted that check would be like, "You don't need to write. It's okay." <laughs> like I can't believe they were like, "Nope, I want." F- yeah, you can write a check, forty-two bucks. And under- they're, they're not budging, in other words. No, 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 no. They're in Los Angeles. They're pretty hardcore. Well, it's the same. They're the parking ticket. It's the same city that's the parking ticket people. So yeah, yeah, that is true. They're actually, not messing around. Actually, with that bottom line. I do want to defend my West Hollywood Library branch. It was actually a county branch, a Los Angeles county okay. branch that I wrote that check to. When I was an undergrad, though, I was so poor and going to. I was getting my degree in creative writing and. I didn't even have enough money to pay for my overdue fees, and I remember the li- the head librarian let me work off my work library. off your fee. How did you do that? My library fee. Organizing well, Dewey Decimal System. Yes, stuff? exactly. Yeah, wow. I mean it was. I mean they had a library. There was a card catalog in that yes. library, and I would just shelve books. And she was so happy that I knew what I was doing. But yeah, um, yeah, I totally forgot about that moment. Libraries have a place in your heart. Oh like, yes. And growing up, you were born in St. Louis. <clears throat> And then you grew up in South Florida. How old were you when you were in South Florida? Oh, I moved to South Florida right around 18 years old. Okay, so you were already an adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I graduated a semester early from high school in St. Louis, yeah. Missouri. And then I went to a community college for a semester and then went to Naples, Florida uh, to live with my friend Christopher Honey. And the plan was we were going to go to New York a few months later. And right. New York never happened. And Naples and Florida did happen for the next eight or ten years. What was Florida like for somebody that wants to be a poet? Because it doesn't, it seems to me like fun in the sun. It doesn't seem like, you know, uh... Oh, not only that, it was Naples, Florida. I was the youngest person that, you know, like, you know, at the age of 18, we're so... Doesn't seem like a hotbed of literature. Not at all, no. And 18-year-olds were bailing from the city. You know, they wanted to get out of that town and then... So there weren't a lot of people my own age, but what was so great about that is I was befriending all these, like, older gay men, like, really kind of old-school gay men, and I got quite a different education from them. Well, probably all the history and everything that they've been through, and you kind of, you get a twinkling eye when you talk about them. Like, what what do you remember about what they talked about? Oh, uh, one of my favorite people was uh, Michael Church, and he was one of my best friends, uh, he was the one I celebrated uh, just anything with, and right. we spent a lot of time together. When I moved away, he had a guest bedroom, and um, not only would he call it, but his relatives would call it Stephen's room. Right. Um, and he died, actually, in 2000, and that was a really rough, it's probably one of the roughest years of my life. And you were still there? I was in Tampa at that right. time. Um, it's probably the year I look, I reflect on it. And it was the year I cried the most ever in my life. Wow. Um, if you were on dancing with the stars, you mm-hmm. have to pick a year of your life and do a dance about it. So you would probably pick 2000. Wow. What music was out in 2000? Like LaBouche? Maybe, was, I don't know. You could pick it. It doesn't have to be that from that year, but <laughs> the themes of the dance. 
would maybe be a lot of you crying. Oh, very true. You know, that would be I mean, a room. So poetic. Would be, it would say <laughs> so, But no, that's an intense year, is my point. Yeah, it was. Um, but, you know, through Michael, I... I mean, I received such an education. He was kind of that gay uncle figure. Right. And, you know, for gay men, we're not going to be emulating the lives of our parents. It's just, you know, I mean, unless you have queer parents. But uh, for me, it's where I got a lot of modeling and guidance and support and love um, from a lot of men in that community, but especially for Michael. And when he passed, it really hit you hard. I was completely devastated. It also... And you were still there at the time. I was in Tampa, so I was only about three hours right. away, two and a half, three hours away. And Was it sudden, or had he been sick for a while? No. Um, he died of um, complications of AIDS, and I went down to caregiver for him at a point in time, and I, I couldn't do it. I regret that I was too young and not emotionally prepared enough. Right. Um to kind of care for him. He was what, 23 years older than I was. Um, and, you know, I was so young, it, I, I couldn't do it. And the story, my story isn't unique. I mean, there's um, thousands and So thousands he would have been in stories. his 40s, 50s when he passed? 41, yeah. Oh, so pre- still young by the way I think of young, because I'm old. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and it was also after the cocktail. So right. it was incredibly... You know, just it was kind of like, what the fuck? Yeah. I thought we were past this. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Have you yeah. written about him? Um, yes. Actually, there's a poem in Inheritance where he had, um, he would organize, you know, the cards given at funerals? Mm-hmm. That he would organize them in a recipe box. Um, he also uh, had, from different From different funerals that he went to. Yeah, like hors d'oeuvres, meals, yeah. desserts. Um because they're all, they're very small. They yes, are perfect so, size. so he bought a recipe box that he was just going to store them in. And of course the recipe box had the, came with, you know, the, the said, tabs. Of course. And he kept he, the tabs. Yes. So he would decide if something was a dessert <laughs> or an order yes. or an entree. Yes. His good friends were entrees. The, the closer he was to them, they were probably entrees. Yeah, the kind of more substantial friendships, I think. Wow. Um, That's so poignant. He also had the dead table where um, he had... You know, lots of photographs of friends, but he had one table where it was all of his dead friends. And he jokingly called it the dead table. And I remember we had a um, a slight argument once or a misunderstanding. And then when I came over his house, my photo was on the dead table. Oh, you're, you're <laughs> dead to him. Wow. Yeah. No, he had an incredible sense of humor and he was a performer and a consummate storyteller. Yeah. That's awesome. When did you write your first poem? Do you remember? Uh... I know the first poem I was published in. I was in the sixth grade. My teacher was Jean Young, and it was part of this progressive uh, writing education where we would write and then we would share it with peer review. And two of my poems were submitted to a national magazine for elementary school kids, and it was published there. Was one of them only one or both? Both of them were. You got Both of them got in? Yes. One was about George Caleb Brigham, who was an artist in Missouri. Okay. And um, I, I was probably... That was probably a writing prompt. I couldn't imagine. Yeah. Like I was like, I'm going to write about yeah, George Caleb really, Brigham. Yeah. Um, and then the other one was about a swan. Um, because, you know, when you're in the sixth grade, that's what you write about. That's what you write about. about. Well, swans yeah. are very metaphoric because they used to be ugly. And then yeah. they, become, they become swans. 
Yeah. I've watched that reality show where people got plastic surgery and it was called The Swan. So you were really ahead I of that curve. That. I it was. was a, it was a number of years ago and it was as awful as you would imagine. Oh, and they all got so, veneers, right? Oh, they all looked exactly the same in weird ways. It was weird. I um, did see that one. Yeah, it was It was not fun. Do you know that, although for someone who wasn't actually kind of good at anything growing up, like I wasn't good at sports, I was effeminate, I didn't have a lot of friends, I was just kind of socially awkward and introverted, that having an identity as a poet and something that I got praise and attention for, it was it's one of the best things that happened to me. It really shaped me. You're the only poet I know, and I know a lot of people. Really? Yeah. I don't think I know other poets. Yeah. You're like, oh, the poet. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that identity six. And I, I know a lot of writers. I've never been drawn to that form. Either as a reader or as a writer, I, I enjoyed it. Like when I, after I met you, I, I bought Inheritance, you, the, the book you mentioned earlier, and I loved it. But it's never been something I've really had an affinity for. What was it? What's it about poetry that that connects with you? Yeah, I can answer that. But also, you write a lot of short. You write shorts, which is kind of short films. Yeah, yeah. which is similar to like why a short film and not a full length. Right. Um, I think that poetry that's probably where we have a similarity like it has it captures that for me right where it's, it's like an, there's an, an economy to it yeah there's a quick in and out to it um part of it is just probably my stamina as a writer and um there's that i also think poetry is there's that economy of language it's a condensed experience um it's also the way it looks on the page there's a lot of things about it that are that that's um Lyrical and uh, has grace, you know? Yeah, it's the language of our emotions. Right. I also think that there's, you know, just every year or so there's an article, like, Is Poetry Dead? And I remember reading the scathing um, essay about... Yeah, the first time that article was written, it was on a rock. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, the first... And I read read the scathing one, and I was reading it, and I thought, poetry is going to be at your funeral. And I meant every sense of that. You know, well, because they always read a poem. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so, and also, you know, poetry is going to outlive that man writing that poetry was dead. I, I'm tempted to name him by name, but I'm not going to. Fuck it. But, I don't care. Yeah, no, that poetry is going to outlive him. It's going to be read at his funeral. It's also going to be that the people who love him and are mourning for him, it's what they're going to go home and write. Yeah. You know, poetry is what people write after a breakup or after something really emotional. They don't sit down and write a novel they're you know they run to poetry when you write poetry is it because you're inspired and you, and, and you have something that you need to get out or is it that get up every day sit down and, and write i would love to be that kind of writer i'm not that disciplined of right. a writer um and nor does it feel like my life can accommodate that right now right um but it is just strictly inspiration and sometimes inspiration looks different you know there are times where I'm in the middle of something and I'll pull the car over to the side of the road and write a poem or I'll stop what I'm doing and write a poem. Also, sometimes I just tear out articles. I have a file that's, um, poem, it's called Poem Inspirations. Yeah. And when I have time to write, I'll sit down and pull out that file and like pull out something that really is capturing me at that moment. Right. And do you always write in, in, in sort of your style, which I, I notice is non-rhyming and sometimes they're shorter, sometimes they're longer. They're very sort of free form. Is that sort of where you feel the most comfortable or have you tried other styles? Yeah. Um, I'm really not that much of a formalist, so I kind of have the narrative blocked down. I also, the collection you have is all autobiographical work. Right. So that focus 
requires a different kind of form. You know, it's not going to be overly ornate or obscure or obtuse. Well, you, it's, it's sort of reportage. It's very, this happened. This was like this. This is how I felt. It's and, and I think for something like that, the power is in its simplicity in a way. Like if you want, adorn it too much, it takes away the, the power of it. You write about some really personal stuff, stuff to do with your family. Uh, how, did it, how did it go over when the book came out? Oh, um, it went over quite well because my family didn't read the book. Okay. So, <clears throat> I had an experience. They loved it. They loved exactly, the cover. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, that, you know, there's not, you know, my parents aren't going to Google me. They're not going to, like, go to a bookstore and, and look up my name. So, um, that kept me safe, which is a really great thing. When I was, I don't know, um, 21 or so, I was the cover, I was on the cover of a magazine and they interviewed me on the inside of the magazine it was maybe 23 and they and so i was just so excited to be on the cover of a magazine that i sent it to my parents who made it very clear to me um because in the you know the the magazine asked like the first time you had sex that you know yeah, like yeah, yeah. and all these personal things and my parents said that they were not interested in reading those things and i asked for clarification i said so i'm understanding that if, any, if anything like that happens in the future you would rather not know and they said yes. And it may sound harsh, but it was actually a great... I loved it. That was It was so freeing So you me. knew that no matter what you did, creatively, or, you know, that had a sort of public thing, that you didn't have to worry about what they were going to think. Exactly. They weren't interested. Did it hurt? No. How nice to know that I can give my parents what they want. I mean, that's easy, right? That I get to... You know, there are a lot of ways I felt like a big, di- a big disappointment as a son, but... Here they were telling me exactly what they wanted, and that's easy to do, to not include them um, in oh my creative... Oh, my God. You know, yeah. sometimes I, I, my parents aren't alive anymore, and my mother was always very supportive. My father wasn't interested. You know, he did okay, but he wasn't interested in what I was interested in, and um, he never came to any of my shows or anything. And sometimes I see people with a father, like, rooting for them, and I wonder, what, what's that like, and what, how would I be different if I had that. Do you ever think about that? Um, if your parents had said, I love the article, send us everything you do, how, what would that be like? Oh. What would it be like? I wouldn't be who I am now. Right. And so, I'm not willing to trade that in. So, I'd, I wouldn't want so I wouldn't want, want it any other but way. But it was probably a little bit of work getting there. Getting to where you are now. Oh, yeah, incredibly so. And one of the reasons why... Um, by a little bit, I mean a shitload. <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, my parents were super critical growing up. I, I actually have a great relationship with them now, so it feels odd to kind of, you know, talk shit about them and their poor parents. They're not going to see it. Ex- exactly. They won't listen to this. Um, and <clears throat> growing up, they were so critical, especially at my lack of ability in sports. And that I wasn't that much of an academic, and um, they made it very clear I was a disappointment. And the one area of my life they wouldn't criticize uh, or even have any interest in was reading. So though my parents would take me to the library, and at one point in time I was taking writing workshops, and my mother would drop me off, which was so supportive, and pick me up from these workshops, they never asked what book I was reading. So I would be sitting on the couch reading a book, and they, they never had any... 
So it could have been way above. It could have been very sexual. It could have been very anything. Oh, and it all was. And yes, it all was. Yeah, definitely, right. definitely. At 15, I read Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Right. Which is a book that no one, you know, no, at 15 exactly. should be reading. So the, it gave me this incredible freedom to explore and learn about things that I wouldn't normally learn about and not having a lot of shame or a need to hide it because I was openly reading, like, gay books in front of my parents. And Did they know you no were gay? Clue. Um, I think all parents know, but that conversation didn't happen until I moved away from home. Right. But you yeah. were reading books and they just didn't care. Exactly. You didn't not have to take the, co- the paper cover off and just pretend it was Little Women or something. No, not at all. In fact, looking for Mr. Goodbar was taken away from me. We were on a family vacation and I was reading it and my aunt, um, my aunt Joanne, who I love and adore, she, she was just like, what are you reading? Because she had read it before and, um, so she took, she kindly took it away, but, um... And that was, that was the, the it, it was the movie with Richard Gere and Sissy Spacek or Jill Clayburgh. No, I don't know one of them. But they go out. They're they're hitting single scene and one night stand in it, and it goes south. Right? They bring home a, a crazy person. Yeah, actually. So she's it's sort squ- of it's sort of like <laughs> talked about the dangers of the nightlife scene, one night stand, and being thing. promiscuous. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, also you're going to pay for that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially for a single woman. Right. Um, that it's based... I know the story's based on a school teacher. I don't know in the book. I can't remember now. But um, essentially, the Richard Gere hustler character can't get it up. And she... she, I think she kindly says, you know, like, it's okay if you're gay or if this is about you being gay. And then he gets violent and kills her. Um so how great that that book was. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, how great it was taken away from me before I read the end of that book. Yes. Oh, um, okay. So you didn't know that he did that. No, I, I had no clue. Right. I only read the book years later. Uh, it's just kind of my go-to example of the kind of things I was reading at the time. Did you know you were gay early on? It didn't yeah. really gel for me until later. Really? Not, not in a really concrete way, no. I remember, like, senior year in high school starting to really have crushes on guys and stuff like that. But I was late. I was a late bloomer in a lot of ways, you know. I think, I think I knew I was different, and in fact, I'd, clearly, my the kids I was going to school with knew I was different too because they would call me fag. I don't think that they knew. I don't think that they perceived me butt fucking someone else. Right. Like I think fag to them was just different. Right. I don't think they even knew like what gay sex acts were or what they right. looked like or how I could participate in them. But um, they just knew I was different, and that's a scary thing for people in the Midwest without a lot of, you know, exposure to those things. What's cool about St. Louis? What's the coolest thing about it? The access to art and culture, that so many things are free. The art museum has an amazing collection, and it's free. There's an outdoor theater, the Muni, that is free. The zoo is free. Um, That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I didn't... And also, I feel like I did actually get a great education from the school system that I went to. Um, so yeah, those are all those are the first things that's, that come that's to a mind. Good, those are good things. When you're writing a poem, do you just know you're done when you're done, or do you ever think, you know, I should I'm going to do another few lines, and then you're like, no, I'm not going to do a few lines. Yeah, I, you know. Well, there's there's that poet expression that a poet's ink is never dry. Right. You know, and there's another expression that um, poems are never finished. They're just abandoned. (laughs) And that might be true. There's also a point for me where just I know my skill and I feel like I can't do anything better right now. This is it. Yeah. 
Do you, like, for example, when I'm writing prose, if I'm writing, working on a novel or whatever, I will write it and I'll print it out and then I'll red pen it and I'll go back. You know, that, that's the process. I like yeah. the, the, the typing and then I like the physical writing on a page, editing sort of thing. Do you edit your poems or are they sort of, they come out the way they are and then that's what they are? Oh, no, they're heavily edited. Right. Um... I do like to write a poem all in one sitting. One, it's a poem. And if I can't write, finish a poem in one sitting, there's a problem. But um, I like to keep it... You know, the moment and mood and feeling I had when writing that poem, it's going to be hard for me to... You're trying to capture a moment, a mood, a a feeling. Yeah, I wonder how painters do it. Painters who don't paint all in one sitting, I wonder how they do it to kind of capture that again. That's foreign to me. Yeah, that's interesting. Where are some of the places that you've read poems? Oh, um, I think this is where someone would list prestigious places, but, right. um, I'm not I want to think, I like, want to hear, like, sort of where your poetry's <laughs> taken you, sort of surprising, the, random... The first poem that was ever read out loud was by a drag queen in Naples, Florida, by the name of Delilah. Um, my friend Michael and I were, uh, our mutual friend Clay, who was Delilah. Um, we, I can't remember why, but we were just hanging out, and I said, I'm going to write a love poem to Delilah, the, the drag queen. So... Um, I wrote her a love poem, you know, a jokingly love poem about penis being tucked into pantyhose. I think it was a line. Sure. Um, and she read it out loud. And so I... Were you there for it when she um, read it? I wasn't. No, we arrived late to the bar that night, yeah. so we missed it. Um, but that was the first time. That's cool. Yeah, a poem read out loud at a bar. Uh, have you read at uh, weddings, funerals? Um, actually... Yes, at weddings, not my own work, um, right. but other people's. Um, I've written occasional poems for people in their lives. Um, sometimes when something really moves me that a friend will say, I'll write a poem about it. And give it um, to them. Yeah, just because there's something about it that uh, my What friend... a personal, wonderful thing to be given. Yes, I think it's nice to be seen, right? It's yeah. nice to be honored. Um, have you ever written a love poem to someone that you loved or to somebody that you were attracted to or? Yes, I'm not, I have an odd sense of romance. So I think that like a love poem written by Stephen Rains is, um, it's not going to warm everyone's heart. What words (laughs) might be in it that might surprise people? Um, no, I don't, uh, do you want to hear one of my latest love yes, poems? Yes, I want All to right. hear a latest love poem. All right. We don't even have to pause. Just go oh, get it. Okay. I'll keep talking. Um, I also want to ask you what a chap book is. Okay, a chap book. Because you've, you've worked on, you've done some chap books, and mm. I don't know what a chap book is. It's one word run together. Yes. What's a chap book? So they originated uh, when paper was a certain size and printers would print um, poems on it. It's just a small, it's almost like a pamphlet filled oh, with okay. poems. Fun. Huh? Yeah. Nice. Well, Whitman published his own. There's a long history of poets publishing their own and then publishing houses publishing them. It's just a really tight, small collection. And it would be about as big as like a playing card or something like that? Um, no, kind of like a playbill. Oh, all right. at a theater. Yeah. Like you would see at a Broadway theater, like that size. Okay. Yeah. I like yeah. that. All right. So you have a love poem for us. Well, I mean, this is a poem that I was dating a guy and, uh, he came to one of my readings and I realized, oh, I'm reading poems that are not about him. Um, maybe I should write a poem about him. So this is the poem I 
I wrote about him. And you told him <clears throat> after, before? Well, you don't tell him before. You don't say, I'm going to write a poem about you. Exactly. No, that's yeah. a lot of pressure. Um, and so I just read it there when he was there. So um, Did he know? This is going I, out with, to the hottie I, in the blue shirt. Yes, I pointed him out in public. No, that would have mortified him. But um, So this is the poem. It's called Trestle. At age 16, he grabbed the side rails of the sidecar, rode the train across the long trestle, 75 feet separating him from the ground, his grip tight, his mouth open, screaming from the thrill, the wind, the full moon, and Sagittarius. It sparked the penny-flat parts of him, rolled over by his crazy mom, distant dad, and the mean kids at school. His ride taught him how to be with me 17 years later, to jump when I came rushing past, to hold on tight, and to know the ride is worth the risk of falling. Wow, that's so beautiful. So he Thank must you. have told you a story about when he was younger. I don't even know what a trestle is. It's some kind of... It's a bridge. Bridge. It's a bridge that trains ride on, yeah. Right, and he told you about that, and you... Oh, what was his reaction? Um, you know, we're not together. He was moderately, <laughs> um, touch. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's where the power in poetry is, is in the specifics. I think to yeah. write a poem that's really large and grand, I don't think that works so much. Um, my friend Henry is, um, a stylist and I was asking him a bunch of questions just because it, right. I'm, I'm fascinated by that job. And he told me that you know, in Los Angeles, he styles a lot of wigs um, for women that um, of the religion that you hide your hair. Um, wow. I know. And um, I, I didn't know there was a religion <clears throat> that you hide your hair. Jewish, in the Jewish faith. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And so I wrote a poem about Henry because I thought, what a loving act to, um, you know, tend to someone's to wig. Help, to help them with this thing that they're doing yeah that they're passionate about or that they believe in yeah so that was a poem too so yeah so like sometimes people will tell me details and i get a spark from them and and off you go yeah where do you like to write anywhere anywhere i can i used to write by hand and i'm not writing by hand so much anymore it's usually on the computer partially because i my handwriting is so bad that um i have a fear that it will get lost that you won't forget what you wrote yeah have you ever written like on a Paper sack, or have you been so inspired that you just grabbed the nearest Whopper wrapper or something? Yes, yes, always. Um, yeah. I don't eat Whoppers. Right. But, um, you know, Emily Dickinson even has a book of, there's a there's a photo book of Emily Dickinson that I have that, it's just of her writing on scraps of paper. Oh, cool. That were the initial inspirations. Yeah, that has nice. a lot of But you've tradition. done that. Do you remember any specific things? Any specific types of paper? Oh, specific lines or paper? Paper. Well, yeah, grocery bags were always big. Right. Um, Joe's receipt. On, on the back of receipts. One yeah. time I was, um, I went to someone's graduation, and graduations are so boring. Right. And I had a thought, and so on the back of the program, and then I wrote on top of the text, too, I wrote, um, I think, two poems. Just in wow, in one graduation. Yeah, which I would never That's... tell him I wasn't paying attention. Well, no, but, but it's yeah. like everybody walks up. You yeah. don't know all those people. You just hope you're looking up when it's your dude. Um, something that you did that I think is so neat, because I went and saw it when I was here in West Hollywood, the Gay Rub. It's a, an art installation, I guess. Tell us about it. It's a collection of rubbings of LGBTQ landmarks from all over the world. 
And a rubbing, most people are familiar with rubbings. Um, first of all, like, you know, the old school credit card machine where you would right. rub it. Or in kindergarten, people did rubbings with leaves where you would put a leaf down and a piece of paper on top of it. Right. And, and do a rubbing. And there's also grave rubbing. So I... Like people go to Jim Morrison's grave and do a rubbing and they get to take it with them or whatever. Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I thought about how few landmarks there are out there honoring, honoring and commemorating gay people. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to collect rubbings of them and display them all at, in one place? Well, it's it's like you get to go on a world tour without hopping on a plane, like we saw right here in West Hollywood. Yeah. How long does it take to do a rubbing, say, of a gravestone? It's actually quite quick. Um, probably just four minutes. Four and to is five there a specific kind of uh, paper and pencil? So there's a fabric that I, if someone's interested, I mail them the fabric. Just if somebody lives somewhere where there's a place where this is a landmark that you should have in your collection, you will let them, they will do it. Yeah, it's a participatory project. There's no that. way I could do it on my own. And so I Okay, had, world, if there's, a, if there's a gay landmark by you and you want to rub, rub it out... Yeah. <laughs> you can totally um, do that. Yeah, and I'll support it. So, yeah, I've mailed people I don't know rubbing supplies, and they've mailed back... What kind of pencils do you use? It's actually crayon. I wanted, crayon? I wanted accessible material, so right. crayon, just unwrapping a crayon and using the body black? of the crayon. Any color? Only black. Only black, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a, a rubbing in the collection from San Francisco that is kind of... You rub something that's not there anymore. Right? It's actually been replaced. But yeah, oh, okay. initially there was a plaque for Harvey Milk um, outside of a metro station in the Castro that I did a rubbing of. And just two or three months later, it was stolen. And it wasn't replaced for a year or so. Right. And so for me, here I thought I was just... I, I never thought the gay rub would be a project that would be the only document. Right. Of Certain of things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there a... A, a landmark or something that you want a rubbing of that you don't have yet that's kind of like on your your wish list? There's so many. Actually, the website, thegayrub.com, has okay. a list of locations of, you know, if someone's going out of town or they want to look up the city that they live in, they can look them up there to see what's around. There's a gravestone of um, Cocteau, Jean Cocteau, yeah. and it's his profile, and he has such a great profile. So that's... That's something that I really want. You um, haven't, you don't have it in your collection. No. Yet. Well, no. people get on it. Yes. Come on. I I remember seeing it, and, and and it's so there's something wonderful about seeing them all together. And I remember reading, and the language is interesting on them. Um, was there something about soldiers, or um, was there any? Was there a military one that I'm not thinking? Yeah, there's. Of? I remember. Lin- I Leonard, remember being really moved by it. Yeah, Leonard. Uh, Matlovich, I think is his last name. He has a on his gravestone, and there's a plaque um, outside of a Starbucks on Castro in San Francisco that states, um, I think he was, in, you know, stating something to the effect that he was an um, he was honored in the military for killing a man. And that's it. That's and what I remember. Discharged for loving another. Yes, and I was like, oh wow. Yeah, and he was on the cover of Time or Newsweek magazine at the time. This was long before the public dialogue about gays in the military. Yeah. And then, so that's a plaque from San Francisco. Yes. And, and, then you, and he's in the Washington Memorial, I believe. And you can get a latte right after you check it out. Exactly. And all right. it was, and that Starbucks is known as the beer, the bear bucks, you know, oh, all yes. the bears that are there. Yeah. So they kept a bear. San Francisco, the Castro in San Francisco, you don't know what year it is when you walk through there. 
because they sometimes it feels like the seventies and some of the the clothes. And the I just I feel like I've gone back in time sometimes, which is what in I a, want. which I like. Yes, all, exactly. Not, it's not like a diss. I want the dolphin shorts. Me too. Yeah, Thank you. Bring, bring it back. Finally, yes. let's talk about that for the next twenty minutes. <laughs> um, you love or are uh, fascinated by Anais Nin. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes, Anais Nin. Anais Nin. Um, why? Oh. I mean, there's a whole bookshelf dedicated. To, to her books and books about her. Yeah, I probably have her collection, her original diaries is in the University of South... Is, is, I'm sorry, um, UCLA. And I feel like I probably have the second largest collection in California. Um, right. My attraction to her is hard to pinpoint, but there's something about someone living openly and being so... And their ability to express themselves... Um, as well as she was living this life I admired. She was living an artist's life. And I, I've heard the name, I've heard some things about her, but I don't really know her work or her story. What, where was she living? And At a very young age, um, her mother left her father, um, who was a, was, a, was a pianist and a composer and was having lots of affairs. Right. And the mother wanted a better life for her children, so she moved them to the U.S., and on the boat ride to the United States, uh, she was given a blank journal. And um, she said that uh, the mother encouraged Anais to write in the journal every day about her adventures in America and that they would send the journal to the father as a long letter to the, her father. And soon she stopped writing to her She's father. She's like, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to send it. Exactly. Eventually that's where yeah. um, what happened. But it also became a lifelong endeavor and passion of hers is writing in her journal. So everything in her life was documented. And you just feel a real connection. Yeah. Um, it's beautiful. She was such a progressive thinker. And I think I discovered her at an age where, um, the dramatics of her life I found, um, appealing and, 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 and through it all, she wrote and she stayed true to herself and was an artist and, and weathered it. Yes. Yeah. And someone who received fame only in the, later years of her life when right. the diary was published. She, I also took great inspiration from when no one was publishing her because she was a female writer that she bought a printing press and it was a foot um, pedaled press wow. that she would typeset the books herself. And she said it was one of the greatest editors she ever had was having to typeset herself and recognizing what was needed and what was Oh, that's was interesting. You know, this is a lot of manual labor. I'm just yes. going to cut that whole, <laughs> that paragraph. We didn't need that yes. paragraph about the dog. Um, you teach writing at uh, the Center to LGBT Seniors. Yes, the same place you have your, mis- your mismatch game. Yes. Same dwelling. What What has that brought you in your life? Oh, um, it's brought me a lot of joy, I would say. The first thing is I love connecting people with writing. And are they all writing poetry or are they writing whatever they want? Only poetry. No. Um, and all autobiographical poetry too. I, I feel like there's a, you know, gay elders are some of the most muted in our culture. Um, it's no longer queer youth, which I was really concerned about and writing workshops around the country for them. But, um, you know, I started to realize how very few gay seniors that we know and that we encounter, especially in a, youth worshiping city like Los Angeles, right? They really get pushed aside. And, you know, what is that like for them? So I came up with the idea and wrote a grant 
that has continually gotten funding from the Los Angeles County Department of Cultural Affairs. And you've put books out, right? And you've had readings, evenings? Yeah. um, So every year there's been a public reading that has um, a phenomenal turnout, a collection of, I edited an an anthology of their writings that Dorothy Allison wrote a preface to that the first time I wrote it, I cried, you know, reading Dorothy Allison's praise of the students' work and the concept of the workshop. Have any of them ever really knocked you out? Like, holy shit, you're talented. Yes, actually, I'm always in awe of the students and, and what they create. And even the students, you know, part of it, there's a learning curve, right? right? And some people come to writing with a lot of experience and some people don't. Right. Um, I've had students where they've had poetry books published before and other students where it's the first time they've ever written anything creatively. And they're all in the same workshop. Right. And they're all, you know, working on the same task. And being autobiographical, it's mining your own personal experience. Yeah. Did anyone ever write about an experience that was so specific and memorable and, holy shit, you did that? That happened to you? I would say one of the the experiences that stands out to me is I, after teaching queer youth, I started teaching writing workshops for people living with HIV. Right. And... You know, always with youth, I would have write about your first time. You know, I always thought that was a loaded experience. And the first time anything, or, oh, or having sex, sex, okay. like the first okay. time someone held your hand, the first time someone kissed you, the first right. time you had sex, like a first in that way that was really loaded. And at this writing workshop, it was a retreat for people living with HIV. Um, it was the first time I had. You know, there were all these old women in the class, these like gray-haired old ladies, and I just. I wasn't prepared to do anything else, so I was just going to use the writing prompt that I always used. Right. And I, I was so scared and thought, oh my God, I'm making They're going to think I'm a, you know, salacious. A pornographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, like I'm writing, I'm asking these right. women to write porn. Right. And um, I did it, and I'm still blown away with the stories that... And, and so after a writing prompt and they write... I give people an opportunity, like, who would like to read what they wrote? All of them raised their hands. And they were some of the most, um, I mean, some of them were super graphic, and some of them were really sweet about sliding over in the bench seat of the car to, like, neck um, with a guy. So it's then I realized, like, my own kind of perception about seniors and who they are and... right. You know, just because one's older... Well, you forget, even when you watch period movies and you think... You know, they have the same hormones, they have the same urges, they have the same stuff as we did, but that didn't come out in the 70s. They were always in the human uh, container. So how did they express them? What did they do? How did they manage them? Yeah, and isn't that fascinating? You don't don't know, like, what was that like? Right. There's also this thing, like, what tremendous pressure as a senior to feel like you have to have the answers when people always talk about, like, oh, the wisdom of our elders. Right. Yes, there is wisdom and life experience, but there's also great um, self-doubt. Right. And insecurities, and those don't necessarily go away. You just find other ways to manage that, and I want to know what that is like. Yeah. Well, your stuff is very, um, you know, literary and and intelligent and all that stuff, but you also have another side of some of the work you do that's more irreverent, uh, sexual, <laughs> uh, fun, and it, it's kind of like this interesting, um, you know, a wide range of, of topics and tones, and, and you've done stuff in gay bars, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, I, there's something about me. I present very... Um, 
maybe average even, but I, there's, I have kind of like a punk sensibility, which right. is kind of how I grew up. Um, there's an, like you said, this irreverence that, um, right. You're not buying into, uh, certain, um, constrictions or that's the way it should be or any of that. Yeah. I'm not so interested in being highbrow. Like right. that's not an aspiration of right. mine. I just want to keep following my artistic impulses and urges and ideas. Right. And I, you know, there is the vagina monologues. Right. And I started thinking, like, gay men need that for their assholes, right? right. Like, why don't we have... And, and also... If these men... wants to talk. Yes. <laughs> 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 oh, shit. You can reuse that. You can reuse oh, that if I you think want. you should, because that is fucking great. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That is good. That's, you I should have invited when you to be a part it, of that. Exactly. When you, well, there was not a lot. It would be short. Anyway, <laughs> when you do it next time, you, the sequel, you could that could be the subtitle. What was the evening called? It was called The Whole Story. Okay. And the W in whole. <laughs> Colon. Was, yes. Literally, if these walls could talk. <clears throat> and I had gay men. You know, gay men are so fixated on dick size. And right. You know, people are always talking about, like, they brag and boast about their dicks, but you never hear someone, like, brag about their asshole, right? Right. Like, maybe they'll say they're tight or that it's hairy, but they don't really go into specifics. And also, I think that, um, you know, as a poet and believing in the specific, I think that one can tell an entire story. Like, by telling the story of your um, whole, you can tell a great story about relationships, about HIV, about... um, being liberated about loosening up about right. restriction and personality. I think. So you decided to do that. How was it easy to get people on board or yeah, I'd love to do that because my social circle, it was easy right. to get yeah, people exactly. on board. Yeah. Right. But so I devoted an evening to men, gay men talking about their relationship with their assholes. Right. And it was incredible. There was great, um, buzz about it. And I followed it up with an evening about, Come called Come As You Are, and okay. then the final evening of the three-part series was Cocktails. Okay. You do have to finally give it. You have to do it. You can't not do it. Yeah. And there are other ideas I thought about playing around with, like, and doing other evenings, but it's... What surprised you about the evenings? I don't. You don't need to get specific or whatever, but was there something giddy about it, uh, funny, liberating, surprising? I think the different art that people brought to the stage was really interesting. Ian McKinnon sang, right. um, and he did a whole, um, segment talking about, um, you know, Madonna's reign. He used Madonna's, right. which I'm sure you would it's appreciate. It's a beautiful song. Yes. Um, an underrated gem about that. He'd come. Okay. Um, come on my window pane. My yeah. love's coming down like, Okay. So he believed, like, his translation of that song was, it was about cum. So, um, he did that. Johnny McGovern, uh, did cocktails and he sang, I saw your cock on Craigslist. Oh, I love that song. Yes. Um, but there were also people that, um, you know, the artist Christopher Lung put, uh, received colored enemas on stage and then shot colored water out of his ass onto a sheet. Um, that then became a piece of artwork. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was mixed. We also had Wes Wood doing a strip tease, like Boylesque. So, yeah, and John Cantwell did a, um, also known as Love Connie. Right. He did a silent piece. Former podcast guest. Yes. Yeah. 
And now, did that evolve into Three Pack Jack? Because I wrote down that's something else you've got out there. And the yeah, so after the evenings, they were so successful and people loved them. And uh, the bookmaker Darren Klein approached me and said, "I really think that there should be a book to document those evenings, to get it out there." And so we created Three Pack Jack, which are a series of three books. Each book is text and images from that evening. And Fun. I know. It's it's really great. It's I'm so proud of that project and the people who have endorsed it and praised it. And they're still... Are you going to do more like that? Probably not. It's a limited edition book and there are just a few left. Are you um, going to do more evenings like that? I mean... I... You know, maybe. In, if the idea really strikes me and I feel like there's a lot of energy for it, I will. Right. Um... Probably not right now, just I'm working on so many other projects. And and I've been kind of this career hedonist in where I just follow ideas that I like. I don't really have this five-year plan, which um, maybe would alter my life. But right now, I just kind of follow things that interest me and sound interesting, you know. And you do other things apart from teach writing uh, for for a living. Uh, you also are a therapist, am I yes. right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that... Um, that happened only about five years ago. Before that, I worked in the HIV field doing HIV testing and counseling, and I enjoyed it so much I went back to school and received my master's in clinical psychology. And so now I work part-time as a therapist, and the other part of my time I spend... So you hard. would have to give people the news sometimes when you were... Always, working. yeah. I was the person that was telling people. I've actually lost count how many people I've told that they're HIV positive. Wow. Yeah. What, was it, what was it like the first time you did that? Um... When, I think it's a position that when people are giving that news, it was my job to be strong for them. I um, I never cried in front of a client. I actually cried in front of a client once. But that reverse caregiving, I never wanted to have happen. I never wanted the client to believe like, oh, he's crying. I need to take care of him. Right. I really saw it as my job to be strong and to provide them, provide them information to make sure that they were okay, that they had a clear understanding of what was what that diagnosis actually means. And what the options were and yeah. what would happen next. And to connect them to care so they didn't just, like, walk out of the clinic and not do anything. Was there something about your personality that made you a good fit for that job, that you could do that? I have a very high emotional tolerance. I think kind of growing up in the environment that I did. Right. Um, as well as just being so, you know, at, since I have a emotion, like an emotional understanding that I'm able just to be there for people and kind of hold that moment what was it what was it about that one client that made you cry it was a client he was he got into a relationship with someone and they both got tested and his partner said that he was negative and he never saw his partner's results in writing and so they proceeded to have unprotected sex which is something that all of us would do right i mean right. that's like living, it, yeah yeah that's living the dream right like oh we're in love we're monogamous and now we don't need to bother with condoms anymore and his partner kept having health issues. Eight years later, his partner kept having health issues and was admitted to the hospital. And in the hospital, he told this client of mine, I actually was lying to you the whole time that I'm HIV positive and I haven't been on meds. So someone who has like... Oh, uh, um, eight years of their life was based on a lie. Yes. And so, of course, I. Um, so the client then leaves the hospital and comes straight to the clinic that I was working in. And, uh, when he was getting tested, he actually tested negative, um, which was so far from my expectation. And he, he started crying and then I was just crying, feeling like there was something really just in the world. Right. Um, 
and and that how awful to like what a betrayal from a partner right and you know that betrayal is understandable on some level given the shame and probably that man's fear of rejection at the same time to really put someone else's health at risk um for you like to be in you know in a long-term relationship like that that's a lot yeah all right. So um, that was the one client I did cry in front of. And because of your experience with that, you wanted to go back and get uh, a master's. Yeah, I um, I did enjoy it. There's also that big question of, as creative people, like, how do we support ourselves? Yeah. And Are there poets that make a living being poets? You remember mm-hmm. Nipsey Russell from the old game shows? No. They used to call him the Poet Laureate. He would be, like, on the Match Game or the Hollywood Squares. or And he would always do, like, a dumb poem. <laughs> that was his showbiz shtick. It wasn't... I don't think he was, like, the government's po- poet lawyer, laureate. Oh. African-American. No. Nipsey, you've never heard the words Nipsey and Russell used together. I'm sorry to say I haven't. You're young. <laughs> yeah. No, he was... The, the, he would be, like... And, he, you know, on the <clears throat> on the Match Game panel, he would be up there, and then he would do, like, a four-line poem. Um, there was maybe a dirty limerick. Of course there was. Yeah, I mean, of so, course. I, I can imagine that. No, I mean, it's. I know a lot of poets who teach, right. you know, in the university settings. But it's that big question, like, how do creative people... I mean, that's one thing you were doing. That's your what we talk about on this podcast a yeah, lot. Yeah, like, how do we support ourselves? And I like high thread count sheets. Right. Right? Like, I like to have a car that runs. How right. Do, how do I do that? And, yeah. and I didn't think that teaching was the way to do it. I didn't think getting my MFA and then trying to find a university job in right. a city I might not enjoy... That didn't appeal to me, and so that's where I thought, you know, being a clinical psychologist, a therapist. What surprised you about it? What surprised me is I thought it was, I thought in a way it meant giving up poetry. I felt like poetry maybe taking a second yeah. seat to it. Back burner. And, yeah, and then I was reading Freud, and he said, I find everywhere I've gone, a poet has gone before me. And, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, of course, dealing with the subconscious and unconscious. And I thought, wow, it, it was such praise for poets. Has it affected your writing? The study that you've done, you know, going and, and thinking about people's psychology and their subconscious and human beings. I try for it to not affect my writing when writing about myself. I'm not right. interested in language that's overly therapized. Right. And so it's a different way. Closure of... by Stephen Rains. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Processing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those aren't, they're not poetic expressions. They represent yeah. something else. And right. I don't, I really don't care to have those enter poetry. Anne Sexton has a po- poem called said the poet to the analyst. And it talks about, you know, their similarities, like what they have in common are language and emotions. And as a reader, what does a good poem, what do your favorite poems do for you? <clears throat> I'm currently judging a contest which involves reading over 130 poetry collections. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. And so there are two things that I'm looking for when reading those books. One, I want to just, I want to be awed by what they're saying and how they're saying it. Another thing is a feeling that might just come out of insecurity or just where I feel like, why the fuck do I write? You know, I feel like this person's got it covered, right. you know, like where you're just, you're reading a master to the point of just, why do I even pick up a pen because right. they're doing this so well? And that's you what you're looking for. Yeah. And I say that in a joking sense. Right. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's what I want. It's um, really cool. All right. I am going to ask you some questions from the observation deck. 
Okay. And we'll see how we do. Lightning round? Yeah, we, well, right. if you want to, you can talk as long as you want. Okay. What movie have you seen more than any other? The movie Living Out Loud, which is... With Holly Hunter. Yes. And the massage scene with Eddie Cibrian. Oh, you know that? I don't know that man's name. What yeah. has he done since then? Married Leanne Rimes, for one. <laughs> Jesus, get your head out of the box. Where have you been? <laughs> they had a has reality it... show on VH1. Do he's an really? actor. Yeah. He's an actor. He's done... I think he was in, like, Chicago Fire, or... I think he's... He was in a Dr. Pepper commercial, too, right? Yeah. Or he was he's... in some kind of commercial I think he did that. soaps, and then, like, nighttime. But, you know, he's yeah. hot. That movie is all... I love that that's your takeaway from that film. That film that I think is so profound, your takeaway is the massage... Well... It's memorable. I saw it, at least. (laughs) Yeah, and that's about the character where, you know, the film starts off that she's singing alone in in her bedroom, and then it ends with her singing out loud on the street. Like, it's this total character progression of someone who tries to, you know, the Oprahism would be like, she yeah. finds her truth or she finds right. her she voice. She has an aha moment. I was thinking yeah. of Oprah at the same time. <laughs> We're in sync. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go back and look at that. Where's the weirdest place you've seen your own image? Oh, um... My image was on bus stop terminals, uh, but I was also part of a... As the poet lore, as the poet? As the poet laureate of West Hollywood? No, that was actually even before that. Oh, it, cool. it was an ad campaign called Gay Heroes um, with the city of West Hollywood, and that was about nine years ago. But they also then promoted this at Pride, and so they put the posters up on every portalette. So basically, every porta potty at Pride had my image on it. That's so, amazing. Um, on the yes. outside, I hope. And the inside, yes. I, I, and the inside, mm, yeah. So people there was could no be escaping my at you. image. Wow. Um, a lot of other people were on those, too, like Christopher Rice, uh, Leslie Jordan. Um, Love it. Yeah. Um, you were also involved in getting these cool um, banners on these light posts in West Hollywood. Tell me about that. For National Poetry Month, I wanted to expose as many people as possible to poetry. I feel like there's such a limited audience that will actually go to a poetry reading or the library And, you know, I think our streets are lined with such great artwork for museum shows. You know, so when a museum is having, you know, like the Maplethorpe. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. And so I thought, well, why can't we do that with poetry and poets? So I collected, now it's two years in a row, so there are 30 poets and lines of their poetry that are lining the streets of Santa Monica in the month of April. Way to go. Thanks. Well done. And do they add to it each year or just put up the ones from last year? They're going to... Add to them each year. They spent some money on that. Yeah, that was the great thing about being Poet Laureate is I have these ideas and people say yes. That is the one thing I didn't expect. That's right. They, you have a little bit of... Cloud, like It's like it's like being on television does for some people. Like It just legitimizes you in a way. It legitimized me in a way that I didn't even expect. So, you know, has my writing gotten better over the past two years? Like, I want to say, like, of course, but I don't really know if that's true or not. But the things that I've been invited to and the respect that people show me, it really has a lot to do with that title. I'm not putting it down. Yeah. I'm just saying that, um, one, I was always, I, you know, I always had faith in my work. There was, uh, the advocate listed me as someone to watch in 2015, right. uh, which was a great honor, and I was really excited. At the same time... You know, for myself, I kept telling myself every year before that that I was someone to watch anyway. Right. You know, I, I think that's something... It's nice to have a little bit of, of heat and a little moment, because then that could, someone can read that and, and pick up the phone and it can open up other opportunities. Yes. I think it's important, though, as creative people to not take stock in that. Yeah. Because um, to 
to just always to find that inner voice that just kind of encourages you along, yeah. whether you're getting that or not. Yeah. And most creative people are doing that, yeah. but to not get caught up in that need for recognition yeah. is dangerous. You're the sexiest man alive, whether People Magazine says so or not. I think everyone is the sexiest man or woman alive. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, definitely. Love it. What's your favorite souvenir from a job? Every place of employment, I have kept my name tag. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, so I have a collection of name tags. And, that, and like, gyms and just yeah. anything I've gone to, I have a whole collection of, like... What's the quirkiest one? Oh, um, when I was doing HIV testing, I worked in bathhouses. Um, that was the second job that I worked. Oh, and so wow. I have a name tag for that. And it's from whatever it says on the top, and then... Yeah, well, it was the name tag that got me into bathhouses for free. Wow. Yeah. It got you in. Yes. What was the weirdest thing that happened when you were working in a bathhouse? I mean, I think it's not weird. It would be expected that I was hit on quite often. And there were, um, you know, guys... I'm on the clock. Yeah, exactly. And guys would be like, oh, I dropped my towel. I mean, it was just so ridiculous. Um, I also didn't realize that bathhouses are such a haven for meth use. Um, And I I didn't expect that. You know, before that... Shit, that. Yeah. And what a devastation to our community. Especially to, I think, creative people who are kind of... uh, a little bit more sensitive. Right. You know, I think that there's a draw to drugs and escapism and You never saw Beth Midler doing a sound check? That was way before your time. But in the Rose. Pe- remember yeah, they used to do she did the bathhouse circuit. Or she did she used to play with Barry Manilow. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They don't have that kind of show anymore in bathhouses. No, what? they do have gyms. A- they have weights though. They yeah. have weight machines. But they somebody don't have- needs to bring back the old singing act in a bathhouse. In San Francisco, Kurt Reed, I don't know if he still does, but he had a um, a reading series in bathhouses. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I know. I know. I always wanted to be a part of that one. I know. hope people stay through the whole poem. Okay, what kind of driver are you? I'm a very safe and cautious driver, kind of like an old lady. That's good. Me too. How did you learn the facts of life? Um, through books. It wasn't a talk with yeah. from my parents. Actually, I had a great health education teacher. I feel like I owe my life to her by the name of Martha Roper, who um, was so open-minded. And, you know, it was the early 90s in St. Louis, Missouri, and I never felt out of place or weird And you, for being you gay. felt like she knew you were gay and that you, yeah. Oh, yes. It was never yeah. was it ever talked about explicitly with her? No, it wasn't. And yeah. that was the most loving um, and supportive thing one could do. Was She's like, I get you, I me. see you. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Uh, do you collect anything? Oh, well, I collect Donnie Eason and books. Yeah, um, you have a ton. That's awesome. Have you ever been starstruck? I get starstruck generally from writers, and that's it. Um, celebrities that are on television or singers don't really do much for me. Right. But uh, generally being around... You're right down the street from Vanderpump, whatever that restaurant is. And I've never even walked inside. Have you? No, I haven't. There's something about that... I don't know. I haven't. I've never been in. The courtyard just seems a little claustrophobic. Yeah, right? It just seems like a lot of ornate... I can't. And doucheville. It kind of... I mean, though I appreciate a sexy man, but like the unbuttoned shirts with the ties, it's just a little much. Um, What writer made you the most starstruck? Um, Sharon Olds, one of my favorite poets. The first time I met her, I was so nervous. Aww. Yeah. Sweet. Who would you like to collaborate with professionally? I seem to always have crushes on photographers. Oh, that's hot. So I would love to maybe collaborate with a photographer at some point in time. And I don't know if that would be ephrastic poems of just writing a poem about a specific piece of artwork or... Um, I don't know, but I just, I'm so drawn to photography and I wish I were a photographer at times. 
That's um, cool. Yeah. All right. What's the most embarrassing CD you have in your collection? Oh, um, I don't, I don't know if it's still in my collection, but my first CD ever uh, was Lita Ford's "Kiss Me Deadly." Wow. I know. That's hardcore. That was, what was your first CD? Uh, well, I bought records, uh, albums. But so do you my first your... album was Elton John, Greatest Hits. Oh, that's a good one. Do you yeah. remember the first CD, though? I remember, you know what, I remember an, the era of when I switched over, and it was, what I remember is a trip to Tower Records in San Francisco, and I bought the Aretha Franklin album that had I Dreamed a Dream on it. And I'm not even close to that, or I don't know, but that was... That was you had a far better music taste than I. No, but it was just something at the time. I wasn't. I wasn't a. I wasn't a huge. It's not like a something I. I listen to a lot or anything like that. So, how can people learn more about what you do? At my website, it's stephenrains.com. It's Stephen with a V. Rains is spelled R-E-I-G-N-S dot com. I love it. You have a great voice. Do you know that? And do you like when you read your poems? Do you like, kind of, I don't know. Let it. Let it. Let it sit in that place that's really rich. And I used to love doing readings of my novels and stuff. I liked the performance of it, but how to read it, how to phrase it, where to place it in your voice. I used to love that process. Do you like to read? Uh, no, I <laughs> no. In fact, I, I never even considered myself um, uh, of having a great voice. It, I think you so have nice a really here, rich, like, think, sexy, warm voice. Oh, thank you. I like it. No, reading to me is uncomfortable, and um, it's so exposing that good. I don't let's like, end with a poem. Perfect. <laughs> I mean, I don't, well, I don't like reading. You know, to do something for you know, poets receive generally small audiences or just right. any literary event. And for me to live through that kind of discomfort, just for like four or six people in the audience, right. that doesn't seem worth it to me. So I really only like reading at large events where there's right. going to be a turnout. Because like if I'm going to be a nervous wreck, there better be more than four people. In yes, it. I want to pay off. Yeah, you know, and exactly. that's where that's about. Do you want? I could read the poem with the most poetic imagery. In yes, the book. Okay. We, we, this is from his book Inheritance. Is it still available if you went online? Yes, at Amazon okay. um, or Sibling Rivalry Press, who is the publisher of it. And you also had a, a collection called Your Dead Body is My Welcome Mat, which was before this one, right? Yes, that was my I first book. I read that. I was 25 years old and that title is taken from The Color Purple from Alice okay. Walker's novel The Color Purple. All right. And let me see if I could find this. I think this is a good poem to end on. And I don't think you ever signed that, so you can sign it. Oh, all right. I will do that. What's Um, the name of it? It's called Two Atlases. Okay. And though it has the most poetic imagery in the book, it took no imagination for me whatsoever. I went to a Halloween party dressed as Atlas, and then I met another cute Atlas, and then we made out in the corner. (gasps) What a great way to end. Okay. Yes. I'm sitting here with my, my... Chin in my elbows. So this is listening rapidly. Pretty short. Okay. Two atlases. We both set down our worlds. Our hands find homes. Our lips find each other. Our tongues wrestle. Our togas fall to the floor. Shrugging off the responsibilities of the world we carry, we find each other. I love that. You left this kind of like. You didn't end with a like we each other. Like you kind of left it still alive. So what, how random that you would go to a party and meet another Atlas? Well, the theme of the party was gods and monsters. Okay, well, then so, that narrows it down a bit. Yeah, there were a lot of pans. I didn't make out with a pan. I don't no, know. I love that you 
both had you were both carrying worlds, and you're like, let's ditch these and make out. Yeah, and it was only when I mean, we truly did set down the you know the globes. You know, yeah. I had a globe, and and I thought, wow, what is that like? And there's also something about like that we don't have that gay imagery. You know, like when people talk about like Greek myths, like all the myths, like how many of them are gay and. Um, it's, there's something so fun about the image of it and all of it. It's just fun and sexy and quirky and cool. And the robes came off. The robes come off? Yes, yeah. So you not at the party. You well, went a little home handsy. It was a little handsy. I mean, there were yeah. robes, you know? Yeah. Like, it was a little handsy. Um, but I also think it's an example of how... It's why I teach autobiographical writing is because I think that our lives are even stranger and more interesting than fiction. Yes, they are. And here's the thing. If you had told that... You could, if you told that story later to your friend, the next day over brunch, I met this other atlas and da 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 da, you'd be like, oh, that's so funny, that's so random. But if you write a poem about it, it becomes more special in a way, more um, documented. Like it, li- it lives. And that was a really neat thing that happened. It's a way of taking something really neat that happened to you, or really awful, or really something, and. Yeah, it's... it's and p- packaging it, in a way. It's capturing that moment and kind of giving it to others. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I, th- I think that's what we do as artists. Did you ever see the Atlas again? The other Atlas? Yes, I did, actually. Okay. Um, did he, does he know there was a poem? No, he does not. He might if he's listening to this. <laughs> if he's one of the seven people. No, I actually have a lot of people listen. Anyway. I know. That's why it was worth talking about. I know. Exactly. It, emo- there was what, an emotional thing for four, me. Four people. What's your favorite mem- memory of Different Light Bookstore? Because I, I used to... Um, the gay bookstore closed. And I used to do readings there. And it was just I it was such a you know special place in my heart. But you live in West Hollywood. You're the poet laureate for crying out loud. Yeah. It's... Um, the closing of Different Light was really sad to me. Um, the What I think about is I had a reading at a Different Light and two weeks before Mickey's, the bar next door, caught on fire. And people kept calling me about it. And they're like, is your reading still going on? Because I heard Mickey's is on fire. And when I, <laughs> I, and I love that that was, that was a concern. But when I left my house and I saw that the street was sectioned off and that there were firefighters and... There were people standing on the corner watching, you know, like their beloved gay bar burn. And I thought, this is like a gay Norman Rockwell to me. Right. You know, it was that like small town moment. And though, you know, Los Angeles actually does feel like a small town and especially West Hollywood. Um, And the gay bookstore was a big part of that. Yeah. Um, But so, you know what, though, you know, I miss it and I do wish we did have a gay bookstore but things do change and evolve, and so now we have this huge new library. Where Which is gorgeous. Yes. Um, I, I got teary-eyed the first time I walked into it. Um, uh-huh. And that there's a huge gay section um, that your book's actually in. Really? You, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, I have you're to in go. the gay section. Yes. I love it, because it's so funny, because somebody I think that I've met recently posted on Facebook, he found my book in a free box outside of the Iliad bookstore in North Hollywood. It was, like, outside on the sidewalk, and it said free... And it was uh, my book, Misadventures in the 213. And he posted it and he said, I didn't know you wrote a book. And I was like, yeah, I, I did. I wrote a couple of them, but enjoy. And like me, I'm wishing I had gone and gotten it because I can always use an extra copy to give people. And it was free in a box. I know. It's, yeah. um, it's not really... A- you were okay that someone got rid of it, right? Oh, yeah. No, I don't mind. Yeah. Because when I, I, I need them... 
um, <laughs> sometimes to give people, and I'm, I'm, I would love for it still to become a TV series. I think it would be really fun to look back at the 90s now. Um, and so I often give them to people as, you know, sort of, you know, thank yous or look at me, I'm a real writer kind I of thing. I love the idea of it as a series. Yeah, it's me so too. It's so like Hollywood focused. and It is. It's Well, what's interesting about it now is the show Friends is extremely popular with millennials on Netflix and reruns and streaming. They love it. And they didn't see it the first time around. And and when they, the reporter of this article talked to them about why, why they were drawn to it, it was... It was that it was friendship before technology made everything so complicated. Like, you could get six oh. friends in a room, and nobody's on their phone. And nobody has this other life on social media that they have to attend to all the time. And people were present. People were present, and there was something about it. They watched it as a sort of wish-fulfillment thing. And I think my book, if we adapted it, uh, was already set in the 90s, so it would, it would have that, but it would be made now, so you could actually kind of kind of show the, the, the nuances of, of how friends were, were different before technology. Well, so yeah. that's my big, that's how I'm pitching it. I think you should, because it's also, I think as gay people, we create our own families. Yes. And like, that's what that book had. Yeah. And there's also, there's not like, it's not that self-loathing gay, you know, like the gay hating. No. And, um, I think we need more of that imagery out there. Awesome. Well, yeah, no. So I don't mind that I can get, somebody can get my book for free or that somebody gave it away. In fact, I often buy my own books on Amazon for a penny because that's how they how much they go for, and then they get you on the shipping. Yeah, the and eight dollar shipping. Yeah, yes. and I my second book, Screening Party, is harder to find because it was a smaller press, so it's a little more expensive on Amazon. But you can still buy it anyway. I bought one once because I ran out to to give to people or whatever. And somebody wrote a note saying, I love your book, but I'm broke, so I had to sell it. And oh. I put a little frame on that, and I keep it. I don't know. I just thought it was so poignant. Well, yeah. Because like, it, he knew he was selling it back to the guy that wrote it. Yeah, but also to not... It's it's a great reminder to not take it personally. Like, yes. I don't take oh, it personally. Oh, I don't take it personally if, at all. Yeah. It's been a long time. Yeah. I'm lucky I got to write books at a time when there were books, you know? What came first? Screening Party? Screening Party? Uh, mis- no, no, the book or the film? Uh, the, the book. Screening Party, uh, Misadventures, and then Screening Party, the book, and then I did the short film pilot after that. So, a few years later. Wow. Yeah. So, but yeah, I'm glad I got to I have an ebook out, uh, a, a mini ebook called Mariner's Club Mixtape that's about my cruise ship, uh, some of my cruise ship adventures. Okay, have you had to read that? How long ago did that come out? Would that you? was last year. Yeah. It was, it was a quick thing. I got this, uh, Offer to write something for a travel-related, you know, compilation, and I, I wrote it in like two weeks, and it was just um, I picked different songs that remind me of specific times in that chapter of my life. So some of them, there were a couple. There was one was a one-night stand in Hong Kong that I had when I'd just gotten off a ship, and so is the title of the section. The song? Uh, yeah, so I think so. Yeah, like, I think, I can't remember how we divided it. The whole thing's called Mariner's Club Mixtape, because I stayed at this this hotel called the Mariner's Club in Hong Kong, which was, like, for seamen, for, like, like <laughs> Navy people could stay for $13, and I was a chorus boy on a cruise ship, so I qualified. Anyway, um, and I think I, I, I talk about each song. I don't know if I headline each one. I, maybe I do. But, yeah, each, each story, there's a different song that reminds me of it. 
That's such a great idea of how to like arrange. A mixtape. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I did that. I worked for that in that world for like five years. So there's so many things that happened, and this was a way to sort of consolidate in a, in a way that would uh, suit this format. How is it different being in that e-format? Do you have a desire to have it be on the page? They, at they some printed. Point? They did print a few, so I do have it on a on a thing. You know, it, it was like a blip. It came out, and you know, I don't know. A few people read it, and I. I tried to talk about it. Uh, I forget that it happened in a way because it happened so quickly. It wasn't like two years of my life. But it's cool. Also, is do you think that it's not this tangible thing that you're encountering? Do you think that's another reason it feels a little less, or just the quickness of it? Uh, maybe, or and also I didn't do like a tour, and I didn't, you know, like those other two, those other books. I really went uh, went hard at in terms of promoting and. And all of that, and they got a lot of press. I, I mean, did. I remember that. Like, I remember being in Florida, yeah. and like, yeah, I mean, that's yeah, what I, found I, I worked it hard, and I was, I, I got lucky with some press stuff, so for sure. So this book, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I got two hundred bucks for it, Canadian. I mean, <laughs> come on. So, but that's it, you know. I'm glad I got to do it at a time when it was a little bit different, but you know, things change. Yeah. So. Anyway, it's been so fun talking about writing and books and poetry with you. Um, I, I, if you want to find Stephen Rains, he told you his website already. His books are still available. They're out there. They're lovely. And um, I want to just walk through the library with you and just see if everybody goes, that's it. That's just the <laughs> right? Because you're like the... You're like, I don't like that shelf there. <laughs> My notoriety. Um, yeah, no, I want to... Yeah. Like, it's like you're the mayor of the library, right? Thank you so much for this. This was really fun. It's been a joy. Thank you. Okay. Happy Memorial Day. That's when we're doing this. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Stephen Rains. You can learn more about him at stephenrains.com. And we also mentioned my books in that podcast. So if you're interested, they're both available on Amazon, Misadventures in the 213 and Screening Party. So check them out if you haven't... Uh, if you haven't ever read my work before, I think you will enjoy them. I'm very proud of them. All right. So this happened. Okay. I am sitting next to a dog that I'm fostering and probably adopting. And his name is Enzo. That was the name that the foster place had for him, the rescue place. But I think I'm going to keep it because I like Italian things very much. It reminds me of my old cruise ship Italian friends. And they were all beautiful and Enzo is like a supermodel, and I'm sitting here petting him, and he's being very good. Um, I've just been drawn to dogs lately, um, and I've just kind of been longing for one. I've never really had one. I, I, uh, Tony, my former roommate, had one for a while here that I was around and sort of helped with, but I've never had one of my own. He's a multi-poo. I got him at this place called Bichons and Buddies that my friends Don and Adam told me about. I, I went over to have dinner with them one night, and I met their dog, Maud, and I just loved her. She was from that same place, and they told me all about it. So I went to an open house yesterday, and I left with Enzo. And I had seen his picture on the website, and I'm like, that dude is so cute. Just like an Italian guy. And so I went, and I met him, and not long after I started the paperwork, somebody else came in to see Enzo. But it was too late because he was going home with me. So, um, so far, so good. He's just peed a little once. Um, I was watching TV last night, 
and uh, I started to watch that uh, HBO movie All the Way with Brian Cranston, and uh, Enzo was not a fan of Brian Cranston. He growled at the screen, <laughs> and then when I switched over to Oprah Super Soul Sunday, Enzo was all about it. So right now he's biting my hand. I don't know why. He's not a strong biter though, which is good. Um, so we'll see, right? Uh, I'm sure all of you listening that have dogs are like, have thoughts for me, advice, uh, things that I'm already probably doing wrong. What's going on with you, Enzo? Um, but anyway, he's a beautiful, lovely little guy. And um, I'm hoping it'll be a wonderful addition to my household. So there's that. All right. Um, that's it. Thank you all for listening. Uh, this has been Dennis, anyone, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.